Professors FM. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Lewis, and I am joined by Doug Battle. How are you today, Doug? I'm doing well. We had uh, episodes five and six of The Last Dance, and we are recording this on May the 4th, Star Wars Day. So, a little Star Wars <laughs> fan over here. So, I'm excited for some new content. And um, yeah, excited to be on new, the show. Some new old content. Exactly. Right? Well, well, yeah, it, repurposed content. I don't know. Whatever we can get these days. There's no sports well, right it, now, and I feel like a lot of my fanhood has been like repurposed around Star Wars and, and other things that fans tend to attach themselves to. Well, and, and we can talk about all those things. You know, I, I love I love when we occasionally get into topics related to entertainment because I think mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the fundamentals hold true when we when we move beyond sports to other realms, movies, uh, singing, acting. Um, I'll, I'll say this though, in terms of the the Jordan documentary. You know, and we, we've talked about doing a, a sort of a master's class for fandom analytics and sports analytics. Mm-hmm. That Jordan documentary, you're talking about really prime source material. And it's, it's, it's one of these things where when I watch such a thing, I almost, and I almost wish I hadn't devoted my life to marketing and the study of fandom because it's like I cannot stop looking at it under a microscope. I feel like I'm teaching a class and I want to go, well, look at this point and look at that point. Mm-hmm. So what I thought we could do is sort of start out with uh, let's, let's get your recommend let's get your observations what kind of struck you because I, I I do think probably some of this is actually kind of new to you I bet you know a lot of it mm-hmm. uh, but what sort of what what popped out Yeah well first off I agree with you Mike watching it last night episodes five and six I felt like every little thing was so applicable to what we tend to talk about um, now as far as what stood out to me. Obviously, I'm a big Kobe guy. Grew up with Kobe being my Jordan. And so seeing Key and MJ interact and in, in kind of the old guard NBA versus Kobe early on in that all-star game shown was really interesting to me. Um, Michael Jordan referring to Kobe Bryant as, quote, that little Laker boy. And, and Kobe kind of adding to the legend of Jordan saying that everything he did was really learned from the way Jordan played basketball. That was a great way to, to open the show and introduce the impact of Michael Jordan before diving into what made that impact or what shaped his public image that was very well crafted and still is to this day. That's a nice point. And the Kobe stuff was striking. And it was, it was really kind of remarkable watching that All-Star Game footage, right? Because well, that, was the, uh, that was the 98 All-Star Game, right? So that was the Jordan's last go-around, I think, in the All-Star Games, or at least before... Mm-hmm. Um, before the second retirement, before the before the Wizards stint, yes, yeah. The NBA has always been, for the longest time, has been built on this star system, and and they say it a lot throughout the documentary that Jordan was the alpha of the alphas or mm-hmm. the star of the stars. Um, but it was pretty clear just from some of that footage that Kobe was immediately on the ra- radar, even in 1998, that little Laker boy as someone that was potentially the next um, the next standard bearer for the league. And, and so Jordan is the, the MVP of that All-Star game, but Kobe guarding him. It was a nice moment for fans. 
but I almost look at that and kind of go, you know, in some ways, if the NBA were scripted, mm-hmm. that's probably how they would have scripted it just as well. Yeah. And I, to add to that, I feel like if the NBA were scripted, we may have seen another year of MJ because the early championship Lakers with Kobe and Shaq would have overlapped and we could have had a Kobe Jordan finals where there would either be a passing of the guard or um, kind of one last stand of greatness as kind of an old man Michael Jordan would would school a younger Kobe Bryant we never got to see that it could have happened I've seen some discussion about what that may have looked like if Jordan had stayed with the Bulls or if Jerry Krause had kept that team together well and and you know that that last name that that is something that throughout the first six episodes has been a you know, a really interesting backstory mm-hmm. on all of this was, is Jerry Krause. And, you know, especially, you know, th- this is the era before before analytics, right? Um, so this is the era where very very much seemed like a gut feel. You know, Jerry Krause seems to almost be playing like the old kind of Red Auerbach kind of wheeler-dealer general manager. You know, the, the backdrop of, of the Bulls' run is an, a great thing for the analyst to consider. Um, Krause... Definitely, I think, comes across as someone that was really successful, really mm-hmm. clever in building the organization, but also was blinded by his own biases in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this continual need to talk about how it's all about the organization or how it's all about, you know, finding the right time to pull things down and sort of regenerate the team um, is obviously something that he believed in, and it was obviously something that he was successful with. I mean, you know, the drafting of Scottie Pippen, the moving out of Charles Oakley, mm-hmm. the bringing in, you know, replacing Stan Albeck with Doug Collins and then replacing Doug Collins. You know, it's, it's almost like he was sort of too in love with his own past successes and had this blind spot. And this is an, an amazingly large blind spot, right, that the... Finding and identifying these generational talents of Scottie Pippen and these singular talents of Michael Jordan is is not something that you can do, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so the idea of like tearing down that team rather than letting it play out, you know, Kraus, you could do a documentary on Kraus, right? Absolutely. This this guy that had this great intuition. But also these blind spots that really that really hurt him. Yeah, he brought about his own fall. There's no doubt. And uh, Steve Kerr shed some light on that in the first episode, saying Jerry Krause couldn't get it out of his own way. Um, my thoughts on Krause is that I think Jerry Krause actually deserves more credit than he's gotten. And I think there's some truth to what he believes and what he's saying and that it does take an organization in basketball. And, and a lot of people, a lot of fans don't understand all that goes into building a championship team and a dynasty franchise. Um, and it clearly bothered him that people didn't recognize that and that he wasn't getting the same kind of recognition you know, as an all-time great, like the Michael Jordans and, and Scottie Pippins were. They show him in the locker room after a championship, champagne, and he's talking about, you know, everyone's saying it's the best team, but it's really the best organization. Um, it may have been the best organization in sports, but ultimately, you know, to me, the takeaway from this is that whether or not you deserve more credit than you should as a general manager, um, trying to tear down a dynasty and once in a lifetime team to prove that you could 
do it again with a whole new fresh batch of players probably isn't the best idea. And I think, you know, he tends to take a bashing, right? The people want to put it out to his ego of he thought he could always recreate it and bring in the next great coach or the next great free agent. Um, like, like I said, I suspect it's, it's not quite ego. It's probably more a matter of, you know, based on his experiences, mm-hmm. he's developed some, some biases. Mm-hmm. I will always come back to, I think he tended to, I mean, and it's a crazy thing to say, but maybe underestimated the uniqueness and the value of a, of a Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. Um, maybe he was right about things like, well, it's time for a Phil Collins to move on and we can replace a lot of these guys. Because, I mean, he was incredibly successful in terms of replacing, you know, Oakley with Horace Grant. I mean, look Grant at bringing, in, Grant with Dennis bringing in Phil Jackson, got rid of a su- yeah. successful coach. And that, that right. was a highly criticized move. But I think where he, you know, the, this big this big blind spot was in terms of the debate of in the NBA, is it about the organization or is it about the team versus is it about the superstars? Right. I think the way the NBA has played out, and it probably drives a guy like Krauss, you know, who wants to build organizations nuts, that the NBA really does seem to be about signing, having the ability to sign two of the top five players in the league mm-hmm. or three of the top ten players on the league to a single team at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that is that probably drives a general manager crazy because that's just something that is almost more about, you know, winning a lottery, kind of the luck of the draw versus you know being a talented manager Mm -hmm. yeah and another part of that is just having a reputation you look at pat riley with the heat or magic johnson more recently with the los angeles lakers um, bringing in multiple superstars who are willing to make sacrifices even at times to make it happen whereas a jerry Krause doesn't have the same pool even if he's the smarter guy than a magic johnson or a pat riley i mean who knows but i want to talk about another blind spot um, but this time a blind spot that was Michael Jordan's and that is as it pertains to the shoe deal the first episode I guess episode five last night shed a lot of light on how Air Jordan became a brand and how Michael Jordan became a partner with Nike and uh, David Falk Michael's agent had this theory that he wanted to treat a team sport like an individual player sport so he wanted michael jordan to be looked at not as a member of a team but more like a boxer or a tennis player and some of these other guys like arthur ash who he had represented before Um, and so when michael signed with nike and there was a whole story that went into that but when he signed with nike i don't think michael had any idea the value that he was signing up for there um, they're talking about, I don't know, $250,000 for that first shoe deal. And it was like a no-brainer for Michael. Well, yeah, that was a steal for Nike. And that's been a big part of Nike becoming what they've become to this day. Yeah, and I and I think that that was a big takeaway for myself as well. And this this is part of what I'm talking about, where it's like, you know, when you work in this realm of sports and marketing, everything starts to feel like sports and marketing. And you you know, I can lose some joy in terms of watching the game, right? Because everything ends up being analyzed as a business decision. So a couple things on that, you know, one of the things that has made Jordan transcendent is that he became a a brand. Mm -hmm. And there's been, you know, there's been other athletes that have risen to real cultural prominence as well. You know, Muhammad Ali. um, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. Well, but Tiger Woods after Michael Jordan, right? Mm -hmm. So 
Ali, Babe Ruth, guys that were transcendent cultural figures. What I think the difference was that Michael came along in an era where the possibility existed. And, and think about if he was playing you know, currently with social media, but the possibility existed for him to truly become, become a brand. And so it was really kind of fortuitous that he got involved with Nike that was trying to you know, broaden its roots from really being a running shoe company to you know include basketball and really become a you know let's say let's call it a lifestyle brand if you were able to travel back in time though and and I think I've dropped I may have mentioned this on a previous podcast when I teach sports marketing I I play uh, I play the Super Bowl shuffle by the Chicago Bears and one of the more striking elements of that is that Walter Payton's shoe deal with was with a company called Kangaroos Mm -hmm. So it was truly a different environment. Um, and I think it was probably a time when folks in the sports space were rapidly learning about transitioning from being these athletic brands, athletic clothing, to lifestyle brands. And Jordan was in the middle of that, and he was a big, big, he was a big, big part of that. The, the other thing that I'll, I'll say is, you know, Jordan is a... Um, He's a very rare athlete. Mm-hmm. And where I'm going with this is he's a very rare athlete in terms of being able to grow the overall pie. Um, a lot of star athletes probably get too much, and this, is, this might sound controversial, probably get too much credit in terms of, let's say, their, their impact on fandom. You know, a lot of times athletes are sort of just... And again, this sounds too harsh, but are kind of the the flavors of the day. And one of the things that's fascinating watching the documentaries, you see all these NBA all-stars that were kind of viewed as really significant draws at the time. But how many of them were really impactful in terms of growing the overall brand? Mm -hmm. And, And so Jordan grew the overall NBA brand. He put people in seats throughout the country. He, you know made the TV ratings explode when he played in the Olympics in, in 92. Whereas let's say a lot of the other guys who were major NBA stars and, you know, Dan Marley, um, Clyde Drexler, some of the guys that have been highlighted in, in the documentary, you know, there, there's no, there's no growing of the pie with those mm-hmm. guys. And, and so Jordan was something really special because he was so much, I mean, look, I mean, you watch these highlights his level of talent was so off the charts that he became something that grew the whole thing. And, and Nike was a huge beneficiary of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say Michael Jordan clearly is one of the most special athletes, if not the most special athlete of all time. Um, but I don't think that's entirely what's made the legend Michael Jordan. I think part of it is being in the right place at the right time while being that maybe once ever um, athlete and that he came right as shoe deals you know he was kind of the first one to make that into a thing whereas now like a LeBron James really is just a reiteration of what several guys have done before and then Jordan's first Olympics was the first time they really were were using NBA guys in the Olympics and so that team kind of has its you know this dream team reputation whereas teams that had Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and Dwayne Wade um, are, are more so forgotten. And so 
Jordan could not have come at a better time for growing the international brand of basketball, coming into an organization that had pieces to compete for championships, and coming against a team like we've heard so much about the Detroit Pistons that made for such a great enemy and such a great team to pull against where he felt like the good guy and he was able to face adversity but overcome it to begin his story. And so the narrative of of Michael Jordan really could not have been written much better. And I don't know that it's ever going to be topped. You look at even his reputation of this guy that everyone wants to be like, I think in the age of social media is something that's a lot less easy to attain with every quote and every um, mistake being spread rapidly and dividing people on on public figures like a LeBron James. And so Michael could not have come at a better time for his own legacy. Well, you know what? And I don't know if this is where you're going with it, but I'm you know, going to sort of key off yeah. a couple of things you, you said in there. Um, because you know th- this was part of the documentary as well, right? The the quote that Republicans buy sneakers, mm-hmm. um, yep, buy sneakers as well. I think you're right. I think Jordan came of age, and it's always going to be a question of you know was Jordan's sort of unique appeal what allowed the NBA to grow, or was it the media environment that made it a, a ripe time for the NBA's primary star to be this cultural uh, this cultural icon? I suspect, I mean, when you go back and you see some of those highlights, Jordan was a, he, he truly was a unique athlete. And so I think you have to give him credit that he was kind of this transcendent thing that just happened to be occurring at a time where, uh, and you know, I mean, this is going to sound old hat, you know, stale to, to the younger generation. But, you know, cable TV was a relatively new phenomena. <laughs> MTV was a relatively new phenomena mm-hmm. in the mid 80s. And so, you know, the, the world in some ways was getting smaller as Jordan was becoming more prominent, but it was still, you know, a world where, you know, unlike, let's say, the current world of a billion YouTube creators, where there was still, you know, sort of singular kind of focal touch points. And so, yeah, I, I, you, you probably are right that Jordan truly was the perfect, the perfect storm. He was probably also came of age in an era that if we compare it to the present era, was much less divided. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of times current athletes, they probably don't even feel like they have a choice at this point, except to be dragged into political battles yep. and and controversies. And in some ways, I think he's kind of taking a little bit of heat for his comments about Republicans, um, Republicans buy sneakers. And I think that that's actually truly unfortunate right i mean you know perhaps his you know we don't know what his political allegiances are Mm -hmm. but he was trying to stay out of it Mm -hmm. and i mean he talks about being a role model as well and so you know he he chose a path that was non-confrontational and you know i mean there's other elements to the brand as well i mean you know his smile particularly his first few years in the league Mm -hmm. you know he was a, a unique uncontroversial universally loved figure now in the in the current political environment it's it's almost hard to imagine that existing in some ways it seems like the nba has um has decided to go down a path where and and look i mean let's be blunt about it i think our current politics are basically i like trump or i hate trump Mm -hmm. and I, i i choose those words carefully and because of the the way popular culture works 
it's very difficult for any star athletes to not be on any side except the I hate Trump uh, side of the spectrum. And that is probably going to limit their ability to become these, let's say, true iconic figures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Michael Jordan was such a universally loved and universally accepted figure. And I think going back to what I was saying earlier, if you take that same guy and the same things he was saying and doing then and put them in today's political atmosphere, um, him staying out of things is viewed as a vice. Because right. with professional athletes, the expectation is that if you have a platform, you are responsible to be an activist. And if you do not do that, then you are being irresponsible. And so kind of retroactively, you could see the criticisms of Michael Jordan in that documentary. And um, hats off to him for taking them because he could have cut that from being in the documentary. And, and you know, he's pretty upfront about who he is and that. You know, he's a basketball player and that to him, it's not his responsibility. And that's his viewpoint. Clearly, President Obama um, was a little disappointed and, and had opposing views. And I'm sure many people do now. But at the time, it seems like he was in a world where that would go over much better than it would now with the LeBron. On the flip side of that, someone like LeBron, who is an activist, is more of a divisive figure than Michael Jordan was because inherently... There are going to be some people that watch him that have a little bit of information on him and know that he has different views than them. And whether they know it or not, that may play a part in pulling against him and painting LeBron as such a villain. Yeah, and and it's you know this this is one of these this is one of these topics that it's tough to talk about in some ways because it, you know it's like there's a warning there's. It's almost like a, a flashing, like a red flag that starts to go up and you start to move into the politics, right? Because I think one of the challenges is that, you know, when, when we talk about athletes and, as I think you said, advocates, they can really only take one side, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't see any, um, you, you see relatively few athletes embracing Donald Trump. That's almost at odds with let's say the the culture that surrounds the the major the major sports brands right mm -hmm. it's um it, look as i think as a sports fan as, as a, an american it's it's kind of sad to watch right i mean you know teams in general it seems it's almost more likely that they will forego the trip to the white house after winning a championship than they will actually go right. so there's something kind of sad about that as a, an observer or you know an academic interested in fandom I will admit to finding it a little bit fascinating that sports is now where it used to be like the, the goal to appeal to the mass market. Sports may well be becoming something that is more designed or going to appeal to certain segments of the population. Mm -hmm. And the idea of having sort of universal appeal is very, very difficult. Yeah, I, I think... People have always acted in their own self-interest as far as leagues and teams and, and players. And I think that's what Jordan was doing. And he pretty much said that. He said, you know, was it selfish of me? Yeah, but that's kind of where I was at at that point in my life. And, you know, I think if a player were being selfish now and acting in their own self-interest as far as their brand and as far as 
how they're going to be perceived by the public and how the media is going to paint them, it would be in their own best interest to um, to have certain views or to not have certain views. And that's just the world that we live in today. And so, but again, that's that's another reason why I don't think the MJ formula is necessarily replicable in 2020. No, not in not in the current environment. Mm-hmm. One other thing, one other thing that I really kind of struck me from the from the episodes five and six, I don't remember which one it was, was uh, Tony Kukoc. Mm-hmm. And it, it was one of the things that I didn't recall that Kukoc was actually a second round draft pick, which was really kind of striking to me. Because I, I think about the, the current NBA and, and a guy with Kukoc's resume of being one of the top players in Europe, six foot 10 inches, six foot 10 inches tall, that well, I mean, what do you think? Where would he? Where would a guy like Kukoc be drafted now, Doug? I mean, they were talking about him like he was the European Magic Johnson. I believe that was a term that they used. And at the time, Magic Johnson was the face of the league, um, or I guess prior to Michael Jordan. And so, you know, with his measurables and looking at his skill set, it's hard to imagine him not being taken in the top five in today's NBA. Yeah, I agree with that. And so that I mean, like I said, maybe not something to make too much of. But another huge indication of how much the league has changed, and and whenever I think about drafting players, I, I can't help but think about the the analytics. Right. Um, and then back in that time period, there's probably not a lot of statistical analysis going on. Um, well, there's le- but, there's less know, samples. There's less. They don't have yeah. Manu Ginobili and Dirk Nowitzki to to base it off of. Well, this is true. I mean, it was sort of right at the beginning of the European uh, era where Mm -hmm. these guys first started coming into first started coming into the league was that was in the 80s. But it was interesting, right? I mean, because if the NBA is a is a league that is about, you know, identifying just a couple of stars, you would think that someone would take a, a shot at a guy like Kukoc let's say earlier than than the second round, because I mean, frankly, right, second round picks in the NBA, you know, we're often surprised when those guys make the team. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. I think another point there, um, as far as the information that scouts and general managers didn't have is really up until that point, we had not seen foreign players playing against NBA competition on any kind of basis. So how do you judge their competition and how good those players are when there's, you know, it's apples and oranges. There, there's nothing to compare them against that's comparable um, until the Olympics. And then at that point, you've got one guy <laughs> that's maybe NBA caliber, maybe not, you're trying to decide, going up against the greatest assembly of five basketball players the world ever put together, um, essentially <laughs> one on five, and with everyone focused in on, on stopping that one player. And so I think up until that point, and up until the the dream team and, and having NBA guys playing in the Olympics, there was no way to really see how those players fared against NBA competition. Yeah, and I think that that's very true, and will always be um, will always be a bit of an issue, right? I mean, and you, you know, when we did we did that show about the NFL draft a, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and it will always be level of competition is always going to be mm-hmm. a, a prime topic around draft time. Uh, and I, and I, think, I think your point is well taken that in that era, there had just been a few European players that had come over. Um, you know, I, I have distant memories of, I think, a, a Russian center named Sabonis playing mm-hmm. in Portland, perhaps. His son, and, his and, son and, plays and a, for the Pacers now. 
Okay. And, and, a, and a few other guys, but definitely not the, you know, concerns about the level of a level of competition. You know, my, my point is more, it's just when you think about drafting in the NBA, mm-hmm. in the NBA itself, it's such a star driven league, right? The, the, despite what Jerry Krause might think, I don't think the key to success in the NBA is having the best seventh man, right? It's finding the guys that really pop and become and become the stars. And so there's this incentive for this more, let's say, risk-taking. So European Magic Johnson, yeah, now people would jump at that very, very early on. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and that's a big part of the reason why it feels like the top yeah. 10 of the draft every year, every other player is European. And the commentators yeah. will say, well, people think he might be the next Manu Ginobili, or people think he might be the next you know, Dirk Nowinski, or now Luka Doncic. Well, and... And it's it's interesting, right? Because it's it's almost like there's two things have happened. It's a it's a preference for the unknown, right? It's a preference for upside rather than a sure thing. I mean, this is this is going back in time now. I remember who was that guy from Duke, Shane Battier, mm-hmm. where they were actually you know by staying for at Duke for so long, kind of hurt himself in the draft, right? Um, because it's like there was no there was no there was no mystery, there was no upside. You didn't feel like maybe. Yeah. He could still become Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost like now there's a preference for not exactly knowing what you're going to get. Yeah, and uh, if, if you look at this year's draft, Anthony Edwards, very small sample size at Georgia. Um, you know, performance was up and down, and everyone likes him as the number one pick here, LiAngelo Ball, because of his ceiling, not so much as his past performance. It's all about potential. The other thing that you know struck me as you were as you were talking about it is. You know the even the way you did those comparisons of the next Luca or the next Ginobili, right? That now as the sample has you know as we've got decades of these European players, now you start to see these different kind of biases pop in, right? And it's like these mysterious European players that we don't know a lot about. If we can now attach them to a successful European player in the NBA. Then voila, you got the comparison, and it's sort of like okay, I'm sort of now starting to buy into this, uh, buy into drafting this guy, and that, that's that's a fascinating kind of bias that I think is really common in a lot of sports. Of oh, I want to get the next player A or the next the next Magic Johnson or the next Larry Bird, um, and I think that kind of bias is especially profound when we're talking about players from Europe. Where, you know, even now, you're just not going to have as much information or as much knowledge about those guys. No. You know, I'd be interested to see if the G League starts trying to attract some of those more premier foreign players so that scouts and managers can see how they fare against American competition better. Um, You know, we've seen more and more college players move to that level. And as guys like Leangelo Ball, who have been playing overseas, may in the future those types of players may be playing in the g league it would be interesting to see if more of the premier foreign players end up in the g league as well that, that's an interesting point because i mean that's one of the other that's one of the other main stories going on at the moment right is the g league what are they up to now three yeah uh, we had our prospects our third one um this week and this one was a little bit different than the others because he was committed to play at UCLA, but he also had signed his letter of intent. So he was signed on to play at UCLA and last minute switches to the G League. So UCLA loses a five-star point guard in a time when every other top 100 point guard has already signed to another school or committed to another school. So they're they're pretty much, you know, they have no backup plan at this point. And 
it's a huge well, loss for that program. Yeah, and I mean, and this is this is really an interesting sports business story that's going on at the moment as well, and sort of rapidly, rapidly evolving. I don't know how much. I mean, I know you and I are both college basketball fans, so we're paying yeah. attention to it. Um, you know, paying the players is one of my pet issues, and has been for a long, long time as well. Right. Um, I mean, this is getting coverage. I tend to think that this is one of the more significant things that is going on, and in the world of sports, this seeming transition from, you know, college basketball for some of the top prospects to going to the, to going to the G league. I mean, you know, as you, as you were telling that story about this guy had already signed a letter of intent. Well, boy, that's kind of an interesting contractual arrangement that we asked 17 year olds to engage in <laughs> that may suddenly not seem like such a big deal right mm-hmm. i mean so national signing day suddenly you go from being a recruit to a committed athlete right so it's, it's like the signing away of all the of all the athletes power well now we've got the g league as a viable option you know other guys have gone to europe and it's it's like the ncaa system and this is why I'm saying this may be a really major story. The NCAA system may be rapidly crumbling before our eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not be, people may not be appreciating how rapidly this is, uh, this is falling apart. I agree. I don't think it's, it's gotten enough attention. And as far as the long-term implications on all of sports, really, I mean, if you look at how collegiate level sports transition to the pros, I think this has much bigger, much more significant implications than, in the long term than Andy Dalton signing with the Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's dead on because I think, you know, the, um, the NCAA teams have played a really unique role in terms of sports, uh, in terms of, let's say, how sports work across the world, right? Where you've had these essentially kind of farm teams affiliated with institutions of higher ed that was really mm-hmm. kind of producing well-known athletes for professional leagues. It's a system that never would have existed if it had not organically grown up. It's a system that never would have existed, right? Mm-hmm. So the colleges were playing football and basketball before the NFL and before the NBA existed. And so it's like those leagues, you know, in a way, the, the NCAA system provided opportunities for those leagues to exist right where oh god you know I, I love these college football players it's a shame that after they're done they've got nowhere to go or you know college basketball players that they've they've got nowhere to take their talents well voila let's let's create a prof- professional leagues out of all of this mm-hmm. um but then you know as these leagues get bigger and bigger as the nba becomes more of a worldwide phenomena and they're taking players from from europe and there's uh you know and as political controversy starts to surround the idea of athletes being exploited by not being paid i truly wonder if the ncaa is operating and particularly with college basketball if the ncaa is just operating on borrowed time at this point yeah I don't know, but uh, time's going to tell with the NBA and the G League, and it's also possible that the whole G League system doesn't work out how it looks like it may. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, and that I think that's a very legitimate question, right? Does the G League have 
is the G League going to capture people's imaginations? Are fans actually going to watch and attend G League games? And not just in the not just in the short term, but are they going to be successful in the long term? But this is kind of an interesting point, right? Because for the G League to be successful, maybe what the G League really needs to do is bring in exciting young high school players that potentially are going to be the next stars, mm-hmm. right? So while I don't think it's the intention, you know, I will often think about, let's say, just the incentives of different organizations and different, the- and different teams in terms of how competition is going to play out. It may be a situation where the G League wants to complement college basketball, mm-hmm. but if the G League is paying salaries of, you know, have, if the G League teams have multi-million dollar payrolls, then the G League has got to put some fans in the seats at some point, and the push to get the top high school players to go G League rather than NCAA, you can you can imagine a scenario where the G League is spending money to really pull fans away from the NCAA. So it's, um, I'm not, I've, I've said it before on this podcast that, you know, college basketball is probably my primary, and the University of Illinois in particular, mm-hmm. is really at the heart of my fandom. But at the moment, you know, if, if it was like a, you know, a stock market buy sell on NCAA basketball, I think you got to sell. Yeah. I think we need to find a way to short it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so why don't we, uh, you got anything else, Doug? No, all, all I'll say is that I hope next time uh, or next week when we talk, we're, we're going to be talking about how in a surprising change of events, they brought all sports back and now the NBA playoffs are on as well as the NHL playoffs and the MLB season. So I'm looking forward to talking about that in a, a very wishful thinking way of looking at next week. Okay, so perhaps next week we'll start to have something, you know, because in a way, in a way, this has become a movie review show at this point. Um, yeah, if not, we're talking about Star Wars, <laughs> the, the new Mandalorian documentary. Well, and, and you know what, I, this is, uh, you know, while, while our focus is on sports, this is a world um, that is impacting all sorts of entertainment. And so it's impacting all sorts of all sorts of fandom. I don't know what what were the blockbusters scheduled for this uh, for this summer. I saw mm-hmm. on, at the grocery store there was Wonder Woman on a bag of Doritos. So I almost assumed that Wonder there was a Wonder Woman movie that was probably uh, yeah. on deck. Um, I know there's a James Bond movie um, that, that's been postponed that a lot of people are looking forward to. Yeah, and and, and maybe we we'll, we'll put this off. But you know, I, I do think you know that. You know, if you're thinking about how this COVID-19 pandemic is going to affect the world of sports, you can easily broaden that and think about how it's going to affect the world of entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, are movie theaters going to come back? If movie theaters, you know, are, are dying off, then how does that change the film industry? It is a, um, it's a scary time for fans, but for someone that studies fandom, perhaps it's the best time ever. Yeah, well, but... <laughs> <laughs> Except those of us that are also fans and study fandom, then it then it's a little bittersweet. <laughs> okay, so everyone, we're going to wrap it here, and so uh, until we talk to you next week.